Sober Powered is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've been married for eight years, and although it's been amazing, it has not been perfect. But the thing that keeps us together is how deeply we care for each other and how we're both willing to adapt and grow. Relationships aren't always perfect, but when you're open to working on things and hearing feedback, your relationships can blossom. Guys, I hate feedback. I want to always be right, and it's taken me a lot of work in therapy not to take things personally all the time. But taking things personally makes what my husband is trying to communicate all about me. If you're thinking of starting therapy, then check out BetterHelp. It's online, convenient, and works with your schedule. And you can switch therapists at any time so that you make sure you find the right fit. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com sober to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sober. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to the Sober Powered Podcast. I'm Jill, and today I have a really good conversation for you with Dr. Bot. He is an addiction medicine specialist and a psychiatrist, and he has a lot of experience in a variety of substance abuse treatment programs, psychiatric and co-occurring diagnosis programs for both adults and adolescents, and he served as the chief medical officer for regional and national behavioral health companies. In this episode, we're going to cover so many things on the topic of resilience. So we'll talk about how addiction breaks down your resilience and how it prevents you from learning to deal with your life. The idea that emotional maturity stops when you start drinking or using. How drugs and alcohol distort our perception of reality and lead us to inaccurate conclusions about what's going on in our life. And then we'll cover the challenges that you might face in early sobriety that might make you want to drink again, how to develop resilience, how to deal with intense negative emotions, especially in early sobriety, and so much more. Dr. Bott writes for Addiction Center, and I'm going to link some of my favorite articles of his in the show notes, and let's get to the interview. Dr. Bott, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So you are a psychiatrist and an addiction medicine specialist, and I'm interested in why you chose that path. Well, you know, as a physician, as a medical doctor, you know, I really looked at what areas of medicine that I believe needed the most work. 
Um, about 25 years ago, I started working in um, assisted living facilities where I got exposed to many patients who had a lot of mental health issues and substance use issues. And uh, the irony is what I saw happening to them is that they were often marginalized. They were left um, unaddressed and just sitting in a corner. And, and my heart really went out to them. So after you know uh, going through medical school, I attempted various specialties in terms of you know getting my exposure through my clinical rotations, and I really saw you know brain health and 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 brain science as the future of medicine. So um, I quickly went into psychiatry and neuroscience, and um, over the years of practicing that, I, I saw many people who came in with mental health issues also had substance use disorders. It was going hand in hand. So I started further specializing in addiction medicine, and that's kind of brought me to where I am at this point in my career. I like that a lot. I like that you didn't start there, and you slowly moved over from what you experienced. Yeah, definitely. I kind of felt it was a broken system, and whatever I could do to help contribute to fixing that is really why I, I, I evolved. So you write articles on top of everything else you do, and... Um, I think the main reason I wanted to have you on the show is I really appreciated your articles about resiliency. That's something that I talk about a lot. I think first, before we even start talking about resiliency, I think a main barrier to it is the strong versus weak idea. Um, so why is resilience different from being like a weak person? Well, you know, I, yeah, I think they're two separate things. You know, one can contribute to an overall um, portrayal of someone's resiliency. And it probably starts out by helping to define what resiliency really is. And, and your resiliency is a combination of characteristics and variables that a human being possesses that helps to um, help them overcome difficult situations. So it's that collective. It's that collective characteristic of various um, parts of your personality, your temperament, your coping mechanisms, your ability to really um, get through what life throws at you. And overall, that combined together is your overall resilience. Being weak, or, or, you know, those are adjectives, I think, that can describe very many different components of your personality and, and your temperament and your overall persona. But um, yeah, they're definitely two distinct things. I think people sometimes confuse them or interchange them, like what willpower or being weak. Um, but those are probably parts of your overall ability to be resilient or not. So what determines whether or not someone is resilient or is not? So, you know, I don't believe we're born innately with our our end all resilience. You know, a resilience is a combination of these possible innate factors that we have, but they're molded and they, they're evolved with our interaction over time throughout the lifespan. You know, it's cultivated. So um, our resilience develops by our environment, by those who um, raise us, uh, how we develop and react and are um, positively or negatively reinforced. Uh, through our experiences, our traumas, um, good things and bad things, and uh, what we end up learning. So it's it's an it's an evolved, learned process to help us overcome uh, difficult things. So it's definitely a, a product of our um, our upbringing, our environment, and our whole uh, life psychology. Something that I've been really interested in lately is um, this idea of 
the window of tolerance and like how much of an emotion we can tolerate before we need to do something to make it go away. And it makes me think back to resilience. And if you didn't learn these skills, then your ability to tolerate stress or discomfort or negative emotion is going to be, you know, very limited. And how does that lead then to relying on substances or struggling with food or something like that? You know, one one part of your overall resilience I did mention before is is your ability to cope and, and tolerate. And um, if we look at addiction and substance use disorders just in, as a whole, as a spectrum, you know, there's misuse, there's there's degrees of what, you know, we've, we've gone away from just using severe or moderate or mild, but, uh, you know, substance use exists on the spectrum. I bring that up because depending on how we cope, um, which is part of our resilience, is going to affect how adaptively or non or maladaptively we deal with difficult situations. So if we're used to um, picking up a drink or picking up tobacco or smoking or fighting or whatever, something that's not healthy for us, uh, when something um, crosses our path as an obstacle, difficulty, a stressor, well, you know, the healthier the coping mechanism, the, the, the better off we're going to be. But over time, if you're consistently bombarded with multiple offend, offending agents, uh, offending circumstances, experiences, it can wear your overall resilience down because resilience is going to get tapped into. And, and so, you know, depending on how many things are happening or thrown at you at the same time can ultimately affect how vulnerable you're going to be, let's say risk factors, to developing a, uh, a substance use disorder if, in fact, you do end up using um, you know, that is a coping mechanism. So, you know, if our coping mechanisms and the, the, the frequency of insults, um, a coping mechanism is healthy and the degree and frequency of insults are spread apart, I think people can, you know, uh, replenish their resiliency characteristic of factors. But um, if you get hit hard or often, you can see that you're, you're, you're not going to cope in the healthiest of ways. But those who do have healthy resiliency or resilience will tend to be able to overcome better without going into a downward negative spiral. Do you think part of resiliency, too, is believing that you can get through the hard things? Yes. You know, that confidence and, and believing in yourself is, is definitely something that needs to be fostered. And it definitely plays a huge part in the hallmarks of your resilience altogether. We learn and, and we tend to positively and uh, reinforce um, certain things within our minds. So the more and more we have positive thinking, it definitely can contribute to overcoming difficult obstacles. And, uh, and that's important. That's a reflection on how we're taught too. You know, if we're modeled well by um, our, our parents or our caregivers on how to react to, um, you know, difficult life obstacles, um, you know, looking at the glass half full type of approach, it, it definitely um, can lead to a better outcome opposed to a negative type of, uh, you know, approach. Yeah. And one of my biggest struggles when I was drinking was not believing in myself at all. I didn't think that I could handle anything. I didn't think that I would ever like achieve anything. And that really just 
destroys your resiliency when you don't even believe in yourself at all. And there was an article that you wrote, um, which I'll link in the show notes that I really enjoyed about how addiction itself destroys your resiliency and breaks it down. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that process? You know, I conceptualize a lot on how we develop uh, our mental immune system. You know, I, I, I hate to dichotomize the body. You know, we're all one. We're one unit. But there's different parts of us, right? There's an abstract concept like the mind. And there's this physical, tangible component of our physical body. You know, just like we talk about our physical defenses, our immune system to certain biological diseases, um, we develop our immune system by being exposed. We put ourselves out there, we develop immunity, and it, it can happen transiently, passively, through vaccinations. Either way, we're inoculated. It's, it, it's, it enters our body in order for our bodies to respond. So the next time that agent or that offensive problem uh, attacks us, our body knows how to recognize it, it's processed it, and it can fight in a robust manner. Um, psychologically, too, we need to be able to overcome uh, we need to have a psychological immune system. And that can only happen if we let things penetrate us. Yes, there are going to be bad things that happen in our lives. But if we don't let them get ingested and processed, then digested and then eliminated, um, we're not going to be able to know how to cope and, and deal with these things. And this is where the irony of um, this false barrier protection of drugs and alcohol exists. You live in a bubble. So when, when, you're when you're surrounding yourself with this artificial protection where drugs and alcohol don't allow you to feel, uh, make you feel like you're protective, invincible, those things that need to be inoculating you, getting into you so you can actually deal with them and process them um, for good and for bad, um, no longer happens when you're inside the bubble of addiction. So um, unfortunately, you're never going to be able to uh, cope with things while you're currently using substances. And, and that's the irony of what happens afterwards when the substances are removed. We get pretty sick and we can't uh, deal with life because we haven't learned how to, to deal with it. Yeah, I felt like a giant baby in the beginning. That's how I described it to, you know, my husband or my therapist or whoever I kept saying, I feel like a little baby who doesn't even know, <laughs> like I don't even know like where to start. And, and you know, that, that's so not interesting, but poignant that you said that because look at the time where we start to use. I mean, if you look at the history of most people's substance use, even from an experimental point of view, it's happening in adolescence, right? When we're, when we're growing physiologically and uh, psychologically. And that's when the brain, the brain's frontal lobe, which is our executive functioning, the part where we control our impulses, rationalize things and help concentrate and pay attention, you know, our higher order thinking, that's developing at its peak. And, you know, introducing drugs and alcohol at that time can affect ultimately the the neuroanatomical and the ultimate psychological development that a human being is going to have. And I bring that up based on what you said is because, you know, maturation is occurring. Then you use the term, I felt like a baby. Well, that's why so many people who use when they're young don't develop and they get kind of like an arrested development. They get stuck where they were. And unfortunately, if they start to use over those, you know, formative years too, by the time they stop using, they haven't developed any further. 
and they 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 are really shocked. It shocks the body, shocks the mind, and they often end up on the other side when they drop their drugs or alcohol with lacking any sort of psychological or physical resources to cope with life. And then that's what we see often. Um, and that's the scary part, right, of dropping drugs or alcohol is because you get a taste of it and you see what life is really like. And it's it's very scary because you haven't been exposed to it. And so, you know, I see that in many of my patients. Yeah, you're an adult, but you have the coping skills of a kid. And then it's like, what do I even do with bills and like problems at work and problems in my marriage when I have the coping skills of like a, you know, 15 year old? I don't for sure. And, and, and things get distorted, right? I mean, you know, we use these phrases like beer goggles and stuff like when we're looking through, I mean, we can't see clearly, but you can't feel feel clearly either. I mean, drugs and alcohol really adulterate what's coming through to our brain and to our mind. And so what's being processed is, is all erroneous. It's inaccurate. So, you know, you know, not only is it bad coming in, it's, it's, it's our reactions to those, those external variables are, are, are inaccurate. Um, so we develop inaccurate uh, reaction and coping mechanisms to the environment. So uh, it's really a vicious cycle. It's, it's, it's tremendously a vicious cycle. I love that you brought that up because I noticed that pattern in myself where things would happen and I would, you know, instantly react to it and have this conclusion about what was going on and what it meant and, you know, what the person's intentions were. And then after I got sober, I ended up having to to reconsider a lot of things and see them for what they actually were. Like I couldn't even see reality back then. I was seeing like this altered easily offended version of my life. Yeah, it, it's a whole relearning process. And uh, again, it depends on what time and what age that we're actually, um, you know, using. Uh, I always say, you know, the, the time of the insult and the injury caused by substances or alcohol uh, really, um, you know, it, it really depends on uh, what age you're using. And uh, if you're using at um, 12 or 14 or 18, um, the risk is, is so much higher if you continue to use it. Of course, if you're using when things have consolidated in your uh, mental and physiological growth. So um, definitely, it really depends on what's going on in your life. And addiction is a combination of so many different things. And I think the drug use and the drugs that are out there, unfortunately, um, are so much more potent that the damage done by so many of our synthetic products, especially, um, they're irreversible. And that's the scary part that's happening. You know, people think, oh, so many natural things that are out there um, are not going to do me damage. But so many things are disguised as natural or whatever, but they're actually synthetic. And they're really, I mean, we've seen how many overdoses and deaths that are occurring in the, in the country and the world. But they're, they're causing irreversible damage in those who are living. And that's really sad. Yeah, I learned about that for the first time when I read the book Never Enough. And she explained all the different drugs and like how they impact the brain. And it is scary. And when you get sober, you just have to, you have to learn how to work with what you have. And there's this 
kind of common thing that we all say in the sober community about how when you start drinking, you stop maturing. And we were kind of talking about that this whole time, but I just wanted to highlight and connect for the listeners who may have heard a lot of people say that, that you you just stop growing and developing. And from what you were saying earlier, I'm imagining like this force field of alcohol like around us and all of the things that are happening are being bounced off the force field and where we're supposed to internalize them and learn from them we're surviving them but they're just kind of like bouncing off and going away i think you just described that so well i mean about that whole living in that bubble thing and look how we act when we're when we're intoxicated and you know we have this artificial you know this liquid strength, right? I mean, we think we can overcome things. Uh, we act a fool. We make, you know, very uh, alarming decisions. And then, unfortunately, uh, I, I kind of like to paint this contextually is that, you know, we have these three phases in, in life, right? This this thing that we call the present, this thing we call the past, and this thing we call the future. Uh, the only time that's most palpable is the present moment, right? But and the dangerous places to live are in the past and in the future because they're kind of concepts. And the irony of drug and alcohol use is it artificially removes us from the only time that's real, the present moment, where we do all of these crazy things. We lie, we steal, we cheat, we fight, we do all these crazy things. And then it drops us back off in that present moment. And as people start to recover from that, immediately their mind goes to the past Oh God, what did I do? What what happened? Um, and going to this remorseful, a regretful, depressed past. And the next place our mind goes is in the future, about all the consequences and the anxiety that builds. And and so I say this because it creates this vicious cycle of alcohol and drugs removing us from the only time that's real, and it drops us back off to living two times that aren't real. We're always living in yesterday's depression and tomorrow's anxiety, and to escape from those uncomfortable, sober moments, we repeat that cycle all over again. Uh, and and, and I, I see that, that that bubble is a very dangerous place to live. Yeah, and it's scary when you stop and you try to get sober and you look at your life in the present and it's like, whoa, what is this mess? And you're finally seeing, yeah. And, and, and that's what's the most difficult part of addiction is, is, is when you're first in early recovery and early sobriety, excuse me, that you are seeing all of those things. And it's scary. It is scary because you, you saw it through those distorted lenses. And then what you might have thought was okay um, through the, you know, liquid, you know, strength of alcohol or the artificial, you know, uh, opioids, whatever you're using that allows you to tolerate those negative emotions or negative circumstances um, are intolerable now. So, yeah, that definitely negatively reinforces you to go pick up again and use again. And that's why uh, addiction is not a, a, a one minute, one week, one month um, type of recovery. It's a, it's a lifelong journey that we have to learn to uh, live with. And, and again, like you said, relearn so many things. Um, but the, the beauty is it, it is possible. So if you're someone who did not have healthy coping skills modeled for you as a kid, 
and then you drink or use drugs for many years and you come out of it as an adult with the emotional maturity of a teenager or a young adult, what can we do to kind of grow up a bit and develop this resiliency that we need? The, the key here is, you know, who can do it on their own and who can do it or who needs professional help? And, and it often becomes very hard to, to develop that self-confidence, the self-control, the positive self-image that we lacked while we use substances. So that can help, again, cultivate and reinstate resilience. Um, so that's where professional help is, is, is very, um, very important. So seeking out help with a, like a licensed clinician, uh, an addiction therapist, or uh, somebody who can help you learn those tools. Um, sometimes going through, um, you know, 12-step or support groups, those are excellent ways to meet people who, um, have done it on their own, and they can share their experiences and help be those models that were absent at the time for those people who um, didn't get it. Because remember, you know, a lot of our resiliency is developed as a result of our environment. And if we had poor role models growing up, or we had a lot of things, so we didn't learn it correctly, that rendered us more vulnerable to developing substance use in the first place. So seeking out healthy connections um, in the community, uh, reconnecting socially with people who can set that positive example. Um, all of those things, again, together can help you. But, you know, formal treatment versus, you know, anecdotal or, or, or people who, you know, are in recovery, either way, as long as you start to combine as much as you can and tap into multi multifaceted, uh, multimodal type of experiences. It's usually the best way to help gather, you know, the, those things that you need to develop your resiliency to move forward. I like what you said a lot about how um, social support can be a stand-in for the example that maybe you didn't get when you were growing up. Like just because you're an adult trying to learn these skills, it doesn't mean that you're you know, everything that happened in your childhood is permanent. Like you can still learn and grow from other people, even as an adult. So it's not, it's not over. You don't, you don't just like have what you have and that's the end of the story. No, absolutely not. I mean, I've seen some remarkable recovery stories happen as a result of, you know, having somebody sponsor an individual and be that road model, a role model and show them the roadmap to how to get back on their feet. And, um, you know, sometimes it takes multiple attempts, but just like anything, it could be from managing our physical illnesses. Um, you know, sometimes we don't get it right the first time. And, you know, um, just like living, you know, we weren't born with a roadmap to life. So, you know, we do need to help have people help us navigate these things. And, um, Definitely, we have to uh, obtain that from the people around us. So when someone tries to get out of the bubble and, you know, get sober, a major problem is all the negative emotions that come flooding back that are often like really unexpected. <laughs> it was at least for me and from a lot of people I've heard from. And that can be a huge trigger to then go back and drink because you don't know how to even handle these emotions at all. Uh, so what have you found that works for getting through that stage and learning to 
to be and deal with your feelings? You know, first of all, you need to have appropriate level of expectations. You know, um, if you if you are living um, with a family, the family needs to also be educated to help you, you know, get through the next many uh, weeks or months of early sobriety. I, I think often the guilt and shame and stigma that is associated with substance use disorder in itself leads to somebody to, to resume using because they're ashamed of themselves. And uh, that shame starts to become most vivid once you put the alcohol or the drugs down. But if you don't have the right family who are aware of this stuff, who are, who are there to support you and to help remind you that it's okay, these are going to be things that um, you're going to feel, you know, that's going to be an important step. If, if it's not there, you know, without having that right um, support system, that can be um, a, a very difficult task. So if you don't have that, you know, ensuring that you start to engage in support groups. So if you don't have that family, you, you know, that is understanding or educated, um, then you need to have um, engaged in support groups with similar minded people who are not going to be judgmental and, and push you back into that, um, that, that substance use using behavior. Uh, another thing you can do is, um, you know, there are many um, sober sober homes and sober support systems that allow, you know, that are of uh, that are modeled after people who are in recovery that can show you the, the right way. And again, it's a non-judgmental, peer-run um, system where there are people who have gone through what the person's going through, and, and they can help support one another. And of course, you know, lastly, of course, is going into treatment, you know, going into treatment if you're not doing it on your own is is to seek professional help. You know, uh, we're lucky that here in, in the United States, we do have um, a multitude of resources and, and, and uh, rehabilitation centers and treatment centers uh, around the U.S. that provide professional uh, health care with doctors and therapists on site that don't just hey, you got to get detox from your substance and you're out the door, but hopefully can show you um, the ropes and be a supporting, um, you know, environment for you where you can engage in therapy, individual group, educational type of therapies that can get you through that early moments um, because there are going to be a lot of emotions that come rushing to you. And those are the things that need to get processed. And sometimes people don't know how to deal with them because they never learned how to deal with them. So being around supportive people, either family, in a supportive living environment, or in a professional center are, are usually the right ways to approach this. What about people that feel ashamed to need help? That's another problem that I see often is people have this belief that they should be able to do it on their own and they don't want to seek out help because it makes them, you know, feel that they've failed or they feel ashamed that other people will find out and what will they think? Again, that, I think that's a product of our, our society. I think society needs to change as a whole to help individuals who are, who are struggling change. As long as we compartmentalize, I guess, all the medical specialties on one side and psychiatry and mental health on another, we're going to continue to uh, ostracize individuals who suffer with mental health and addiction problems. You know, the United States of America needs to do a better job with accepting um, what's there. We can't keep pointing out the problem 
without recognizing and supporting people who have that problem. We can keep saying, no, addiction is an issue, drug abuse is an issue, people are over to, but then what are we doing about it? So, you know, I think, you know, this pendulum swung where we, we identified addiction as a, as, a, as a problem of willpower in the beginning or a problem of lack of self-control. Yeah, those are components of it. And then it swung into addiction is a, is a disease and the disease model, which I think was an attempt to try and help people equalize addiction to other medical problems. But the truth is there, there, there's, there's somewhere in the middle that we have to look at that, yes, is a disease concept, but at the same time, you know, we can't rest alone on the fact that, hey, it's a disease, I'm sick, and I can't help myself. But um, that's one side, but also at the same time to keep educating the public so it's out there that we um, view in a different light uh, people suffer with this. So when people do struggle with this, um, it's it's not as difficult to come out and say, hey, I have a problem and I need help than with many other illnesses. And it, and it is sad because when we talk about the self-esteem and the depression that's exposed to people who have other medical illnesses, they don't lack the self-esteem when, for example, people who suffer with cancer, uh, which is a medical problem. But yet people who suffer with addiction have tremendously low self-esteem. So I do believe it's a medical, it's a societal, it, it's, it's a whole generational type of change that needs to occur in order for us to pull people who suffer with addiction through these holes that they're, um, they're facing. Yeah, the self-esteem part was the most challenging for me and ultimately like why I did get sober. But I always went through life believing like I was, you know, a strong person and I can overcome hard things and I have all this ambition, whatever. But then I believed the stigma that because I couldn't control the amount that I drank, I'm a weak willed loser with no self-control. And I had this like internal battle, like, but I think that I am strong and, you know, good and whatever. And then at the same time, it's like, but I, I couldn't be because I can't control the amount I drink. And clearly it's a choice. And it was this horrible battle that would happen every day in my head. When we, when we evolve through anything that's difficult, there are going to be, um, you know, ups and downs in our emotions. You know, we're going to go through stages and, you know, we're going we're gonna to go through periods of denial. We're going to go through periods of acceptance. We're going to go through periods of contemplation. I mean, things are going to happen like that. And that's normal. Uh, and again, it speaks to my point that I said a little bit earlier. Right? Until we as a, as a whole, as a society, start to, you know, change the way we perceive addiction and judge those who suffer with mental illness, um, you know, we're not going to help be that mirror for that, you know, that human being, because you did not by yourself develop those feelings because you interpreted the way others are judged, you know, um, and how you would be judged. And, and so, uh, you know, we don't we don't clap with one hand unless you're very talented. But the point is, is that, you know, uh, a lot of how we feel is the, the result of how uh, we are treated. And uh, just like we project, we're also um, the, the, the result of our environment and how we, how we, we see people being judged. So, um, yeah, those emotions that you feel is because uh, we, we do label people, unfortunately. Yeah. And you mentioned tempering expectations 
in sobriety. And I think a lot of us just expect, you know, I got sober, the problem has been resolved. <laughs> and then all these feelings pop up and, and there are all these new problems that we have to learn to deal with. And I think what you said about, you know, having the right expectations around sobriety and what the process is like is really important and understanding that there are hard times and those are okay. And it's okay to feel depressed. It's okay to feel cranky. It's okay to feel happy. You don't have to feel wonderful all the time, but just having expectations around like what is okay and what is normal and what other people deal with too. Well, those mixed feelings that you just explained are definitely part of the process. You know, we are often using because we have undigested um, previous experiences that are going to have to be processed at some point. So there is going to be that flooding of emotions and, um, you know, our own self-awareness that needs to be kind of like, wait a minute, who am I? What am I? Because our identity is often wrapped and revolved around our substance use. We've become, you know, who we are uh, and, and only because of the drugs and alcohol that we're using, even the people we associated with the behaviors that we do. So it's a, it's a whole relearning process. But then also that flight to health. You know, many people want to go from zero to 60. They want to, you know, okay, I stopped, now I'm okay again. And they want to kind of renormalize their life if that's, what the word, I, I have lack of a better word, excuse me, but they want to be perceived at least as normal and that they don't have an issue. And that I think is, is, is a, is a failure too, because it's, it's, you know, it's a step by step process. You know, you can't go all those years with so much unresolved baggage and, you know, just cause you stop not resolve those things. And that takes time. But that's where I, you know, I, I educate a lot of people. You have to identify the persons, the places, the things, the situations, and those experiences that led to certain thoughts, that evoked certain emotions, that ultimately led to those behaviors of substance use. Now, they don't always come in that order, but they often happen rapidly when you leave. So the minute you maybe leave a treatment center or you achieve early recovery or sobriety, you don't know when zero to 60 is going to happen again. So unless you've worked on identifying those associations of those person, places, things, situations, and experiences that led to the emotions and the, the, the thoughts that ultimately tied into those behaviors, you won't be able to combat them because you won't recognize them. So that, that homework that needs to be done, that whole you know um, investigation and exploration um, that's part of the recovery process. And that does not happen overnight. That does not happen overnight. And so um, that's where people seeking long-term recovery need to work on. What was it that, um, and what is it that was tied into my substance use? Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that there is a lot of unresolved stuff that's there. Like we think that because we survived something hard that we got through it. But if we have this bubble around us of alcohol or drugs or whatever it was, it bounced off you. It didn't really like get in and you didn't work through it. And we have to work through all this stuff then when we stop. And I like that you described it also as zero to 60 because I, I actually just experienced one of those <laughs> last week where it was like a punch in the face. It was so sudden and intense. And I was just like, whoa, 
I'm two and a half years sober. Like, what is this? This isn't supposed to happen. And yeah, I had done the work to recognize like, no, that is one of your main things that gets you. And, you know, I worked through it, obviously, but that that is a very accurate description. No, no, and we see it a lot, and 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 that that often leads to to relapse when people do it. I mean, you have more time, but those who are just like the first initial days or or weeks, that's a very vulnerable moment for people. So when they get flooded with those things and they don't have the tools or the support system, yeah, their their risk of relapse is high. So um, hopefully, we can help in these discussions and talks like this help people who are listening you know, understand how to, you know, gauge their, their momentum. So they don't get so quick into, Hey, I'm okay. And nothing's wrong. And, and we're not saying that you are wrong. We just have to make sure that you don't um, live in denial for too long and, and don't um, clear up all that undigested baggage uh, that was being carried around, unfortunately, because, you know, the sad part of people who suffer with substance use is that, and many people with difficult or, or, or not unhealthy behaviors that they have the inability to delay their own gratification and they have the inability to also tolerate negative emotional situations. So when you have those two characteristics, the unfortunate part is it, it, it renders you very susceptible to relapse or again, negative behaviors all over again. So we have, we have to work on ourselves. We have to work on ourselves to be able to deal and cope and handle life, not have to, I want to get rid of this feeling and I get rid of it right now. And usually that's by picking up a drink or taking a pill or shooting ourselves and stuff. And that's why those are risk factors. So that's where that self-development needs to occur, self-exploration and self-awareness in order for us to be comfortable in our own skin has to happen over time. Yeah, I like that you described it as self-exploration. It's a learning process. Thank you so much for coming on today. And this was amazing. I have so many things that I need to go think about after this. Um, but where can we connect more with your work and follow up with you? Well, a lot of the content um, that we're putting out there is on addictioncenter.com. And um, that's just a resource where we have a lot of addiction and mental health content uh, for anybody to go on and explore. It could be for families, it could be for people suffering, people who have friends or loved ones that they just want to get help or information for. Uh, addictioncenter.com does uh, have a lot of that material there. Excellent. And I will link all of that in the show notes um, for everybody to check out. And again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure being here. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how 
how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.